This is Finding Center, a daily half hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is A Light in the Darkness. Chris Crow, a professor of English and English education at BYU at the time of this address, will give his devotional entitled The Undiscovered Country, Navigating Toward the Future. I've been thinking about you uh, and this talk for several weeks since I received the assignment, and this is what I've come up with. In perhaps the most famous soliloquy in one of Shakespeare's most famous plays, the brooding character Hamlet reflects on choice, life, and uncertainty. Even if you've not read or seen the play, you'll certainly recognize the opening line of Hamlet's speech, to be or not to be, that is the question. But unless you're a Star Trek fan, you may have forgotten that later in that same soliloquy, Hamlet refers to death as the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. Today I'd like to talk about a different undiscovered country, not death, but the future, the months and years, the life you've got ahead of you. And as someone well advanced in years, I feel qualified to talk about the future because I've been there, sort of, and I'm here today to tell you what I've learned about the securitous path that led to my future, which is now my present. If you're anything like I was as a student, the short and long-term future often weighs heavily on your mind. And to one degree or another, all of these future events and experiences are as yet undiscovered country for you, even if you're a meticulous and experienced planner. You may think you know exactly where you're headed, exactly how you'll get there, and exactly what it will be like when you get there, but I'm here to tell you that in the long run, you've got a lot to learn. Some of the anxiety related to our undiscovered country comes from unrealistic expectations, from living in an achievement culture, and maybe even from a dose of perfectionism. A couple weeks ago, Lindsay Levitt Brown, an author friend of mine, was speaking to one of my classes. She shared with my students her path to publication, including displaying the books and poetry she had written as an elementary student and the scores of rejections she received when she started her writing career. As a young girl, she knew she wanted to be a writer, but she didn't know and hadn't learned exactly how to make that happen. And that lack of knowledge, the uncertainty about who she was and what she wanted to be, caused a considerable amount of stress and discouragement because she said, I thought you had to have that all worked out by the time you were nine. Well, she now knows she was wrong. Of course, at nine, most of us do have some idea of what we want to be and do when we grow up. But that dream often changes as we get older because we change as we get older and our circumstances change as we get older and our opportunities and abilities change. It's wonderful and wise and absolutely essential to have dreams and goals, but it's also wonderful and wise to be flexible enough to allow yourself to adapt to the situations you encounter as you progress through life. Some of those changes occur naturally. Some are a result of our own efforts and strategic planning, and some arrive unbidden and totally without warning. But I can guarantee you that change will come whether you want it or not. And I can tell you that the only way to endure well the inevitable curveballs life will throw at you is to be firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, personal, academic, and professional preparation will be invaluable as you chart your way through undiscovered country. 
But the light of the gospel and the guidance of the Holy Ghost are the constants you can rely on to help you make the right decisions when you reach life's inevitable crossroads. That spiritual guidance is the only sure way to know whether to stop and camp a while or to forge ahead on the path to the left or to the right. Let me illustrate and witness to the truthfulness of what I just said with some personal examples. I was in eighth grade when I first heard the word Mormon. I'm pretty sure I wasn't aware of any of my classmates at McCamey Junior High in Tempe, Arizona, who were actual members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But I was aware, dimly, that such a religion existed and that it was radically different from the Roman Catholic religion I'd been raised in. When I started ninth grade at McClintock High School the following year, I met my first Mormon, a football teammate who talked long and often about his church and its various and what seemed to me exhausting, activities. But aside from being a member of a strange religion, Walt Denham was normal in most other respects, and he was a great friend. And as a Mormon insider, he pointed out that our school was swarming with other kids from his church. And most of those kids seemed all right, or even better than all right. In my junior year, one of those kids, Elizabeth Foley, invited me to the annual Sadie Hawkins dance. And I was thrilled to discover that such a gorgeous young woman knew who I was, and even more thrilled to get to go on a date with her. That first date eventually led to another, which led to another, and pretty soon we were dating regularly. Like Walt, Elizabeth was furiously active in her religion and constantly trying to drag me to seminary or firesides or mutual or sacrament meeting or anything else churchy she was involved in. And I have to admit that my interest in those activities was inversely proportional to my interest in Elizabeth. (laughs) I absolutely loved being around her just as much as I absolutely loathed the idea of going to some activity at her strange church. As her relationship matured, she talked more and more about her religion and about how someday she planned to get married in a temple. I told her that as far as I was concerned, one church building was as good as another. And she explained, or tried to explain, that it was a little more complicated than that. We kept dating. She kept pitching Mormon activities to me, and I kept resisting. Not long into our senior year, she broke up with me because she didn't want to risk falling in love with someone she couldn't marry in the temple. Her parting gift was a grim-looking black paperback called A Marvelous Work and a Wonder. I tossed the book into my locker and tried to forget about it. In an odd twist of fate, around the time Elizabeth and I broke up, BYU started recruiting me to play football here. My dad absolutely hated the thought of my going to BYU. He was sure they would brainwash me into joining their church, and he pushed me to accept instead the scholarship offer from the University of Arizona. After visiting both schools and meeting BYU's brand-new head coach, a guy named Lavelle Edwards, I decided to sign with BYU for two reasons— Provo was a refreshing contrast from the Arizona desert I'd been living in. And at the time, BYU has a weak football team that I thought I had a pretty good chance to see a lot of playing time. And it turned out that I was right about that, not just in the way I expected. In my four years on a team, I did see lots of playing time. Unfortunately, most of it was from the sidelines. In the end, though, neither religion nor Elizabeth had anything to do with my decision to attend BYU. It just seemed to make good football sense. So a few months passed, and as my high school career drew to a close, I started wondering 
why her religion was such a big deal to Elizabeth and why she was so deeply committed to it. That's when I remembered that marvelous something book, and I thought it might help me understand what she hadn't been able to get me to understand. I took it home and skimmed it. Most of the text was way beyond my understanding. But when I went back through it, looking for answers, I came upon a passage in chapter 2, written by a boy who related an incredible experience he had had in 1820. When I finished that passage, I knew that this boy, whoever he was, had honestly related a real experience. He really had gone into the forest to pray, and he really had seen God the Father and Jesus Christ. His story was true. Well, that led to a whirlwind of events, talking to missionaries, going to church, talking with Elizabeth about the church's doctrine. That placed me at a crucial crossroad. Knowing what I knew, should I join this church? The missionaries had their own ideas, of course, but I didn't know if I had the courage to take that leap of faith, especially because I knew that at the time my father would consider it a departure not just from the Catholic Church, but also from my family. So I prayed, and I fasted for the first time, and I had my own wrestle with the Spirit, trying to distill God's will from my own thoughts and desires. And I can tell you that it was the hardest thing I had ever done. I didn't have a vision or a burning in my bosom or any obvious manifestation that would have made the decision easy. But I did, finally, feel the answer, and it wasn't the answer I wanted. I ended up missing my first two baptism appointments. And I can only imagine what the poor missionaries were thinking. But my work schedule had finally allowed me to show up at the Tempe Stake Center on July 2nd, this very day in 1972, to be baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It would be a monumental understatement to say that that decision altered the path of my life. And it's impossible to understate the role prayer and the Holy Ghost played in making that decision. Though I didn't realize it at the time, I have learned in the decades since that when I have taken the time to ponder and pray about some of life's most important decisions, I've been blessed to know which path to take. And it's probably no surprise to you to hear that the right path isn't always the easiest. So I came to Provo in late July in time for two-day football practices and to settle into my dorm and gear up for my first semester of college a semester where I would earn a C- in freshman English. I can't blame my lousy grades that semester on football or on homesickness, but I think part of my problem was heart sickness. Elizabeth had stayed in Arizona to attend school, and the longer I was away from her, the more I missed her. And I had a pretty good idea how to solve that problem. I proposed. She said yes. We got married just in time to move into Wymount Terrace for my sophomore year. Not surprisingly, my academic record improved almost immediately. <laughs> and thanks to Elizabeth, I stopped taking classes just because they sounded interesting and instead took classes that would actually lead to graduation. <laughs> when BYU handed me my diploma in December 1976, they also handed us an eviction notice. I finished my last final exam just before Christmas break, and we still didn't know where we'd be living when we had to move out of Wymount a week or so later. I have to tell you, that caused us considerable stress. College life hadn't been exactly stress-free. The rigors of football and an English major, and yes, I'm well aware of the irony of my majoring in English after my lowly C- start, took a lot out of me, and calling our budget shoestring would be a gross exaggeration. 
But the challenging nature of my last three years at BYU is nothing compared to facing an unknown, uncertain, terrifyingly blank future, a daunted, undiscovered country. In those gut-wrenching days when I was searching madly for a job, I was also contemplating my situation, and that's when I realized that for me my college experience had been something like tubing down the Salt River in Arizona. There had been bumps and twists and some white water along the way, but there was also the security of solid land to my left and to my right, and the promise that if I stayed in the river long enough, it would deliver me to the exit point where I could get out safely. The problem I was facing in December 1976 was that my final destination wasn't a crystal pond somewhere. It was a figurative ocean, vast, deep, and endless. And in those dark, terrifying days of drifting into the great unknown, we spent a lot of time praying and making contingency plans and searching for cheap apartments that might take us with a pittance for a deposit and no advance notice. And we also took comfort in the scriptures, especially these two, Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of. And 1 Nephi chapter 9, verse 6, But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning, wherefore he prepareth a way to accomplish all his works among the children of men. And did I say we prayed day and night for a miracle? A miracle came. A high school up in Ogden had a sudden opening for an English teacher, especially a teacher who might want to coach a little. I grabbed the contract before they could change their minds, and we moved to Ogden, where we bought a tiny old house on 29th Street, just below Harrison Boulevard, and settled in to start our grown-up lives. We fully expected to live there for decades. We lasted just six months. Though I loved my colleagues and my students at Weber High, when a vacancy at my high school alma mater opened up in Arizona in March, I had to apply. They offered me a job at the end of the school year, So that July, we packed up our meager belongings, sold our little old house, and moved to Arizona. We bought a brand new house, got involved in the ward, started having kids, and figured that, without a doubt, we would finish out our lives in Arizona. We lasted 10 years. In those 10 years, while teaching high school full-time, I went to graduate school part-time at Arizona State University primarily to make myself a better high school English teacher, but also to take advantage of the salary incentives that came with graduate degrees. And while in graduate school, I also started writing magazine articles, scholarly articles, professional journals, fiction, and even a little poetry. I don't have time to go into all the details, but after a decade of teaching high school English, I wondered what it might be like to be a college teacher, to have a job that gave me more time to write. I applied for a few jobs, heard nothing, and felt lucky that I had a job I loved at a school I loved. But then came an offer from a university in Japan, a lifetime appointment even. Initially I was flattered, but the idea of taking my wife and four little children halfway around the world to a foreign country where none of us would be able to read, write, or speak the local language took more courage than I had. I was ready to say thanks, but no thanks. But knowing how interested I was in teaching at the college level, Elizabeth suggested we should study it out and then pray about it. So we made pro-con list, talked with family and friends and our bishop, learned what we could about Japan and Japanese culture. And after all that, the answer was pretty clear. No. Nope. No way. A bird in the hand. The devil you know. All that. But Elizabeth pointed out we hadn't prayed yet. So we prayed, taking turns, talking, then praying some more. 
The wall of fear I had of moving to Japan effectively blocked the still small voice. So after days of prayer and conversation, we were still mired in a stupor of thought. And that's when Elizabeth suggested that we pray harder and more humbly. And that's when the answer I didn't want to hear arrived. Go. We went. And it was hard. Stimulating, soul-stretching, life-enriching, hard. We lasted three years. After about two years, we started having feelings that maybe Japan wasn't the end for us. So I started applying for jobs in the United States, and I quickly learned in the days before email and Skype, no one wanted to interview some guy in Japan. So we dug in, assuming the Lord must want us to stay in Japan for reasons beyond our own understanding. But early one morning in our third year there, our phone rang. It was Lanny Britch, the academic vice president at BYU-Hawaii. A member of their English department had just left unexpectedly. Would I be interested in replacing him? Not a lot of prayer necessary to confirm that decision. <laughs> so we moved to the fabulous north shore of Oahu and fell in love with Hawaii, the university, and its wonderful students from all over the world. We bought a house. We bought grave sites. We knew beyond a doubt that we had finally reached our last stop. <clears throat> It would take a tsunami or some other act of God to pry us from our bright little island in the Pacific. We lasted four years. At the beginning of my fourth year in paradise, I received a letter from Greg Clark, a member of the English department at BYU Provo. There was an opening in their department for someone with my qualifications. Would I be interested in applying? Easy answer, no. But Elizabeth and I felt that we should talk it over, so we did, with extreme bias. Neither one of us wanted to leave Laie. Neither one of us wanted to give up the sun-drenched beach for snow-capped mountains. But we studied it out in our minds, made our pro-con list, talked to friends who worked in Provo, and made our decision. No. <clears throat> of course, we still had one step left to complete. We had to pray about it. We had to seek the Spirit and then be sensitive enough to discern our Heavenly Father's will through the shouted objections of our own will. And it was tough. That old stupor of thought settled in every time we prayed for confirmation. And every morning when we walked the beach at sunrise, that stupory fog got even thicker. But we kept at it until we finally had an answer. And I guess you know what that answer was. It's now obvious from my current perspective how each of the decisions Elizabeth and I have made in the last few decades led us to where we currently are. From where we stand now, the destination was inevitable. But on the front end, when we were just getting started, we faced the great void of undiscovered country with little or no idea of what would come next. In that respect, life follows one of the key principles of fiction writing, the notion called the inevitability of retrospect. Those of us who like stories, reading or watching them, would admit that suspense, the question of what will happen next, is usually what keeps us engaged. We want to follow the plot filled with wonder and speculation and we hope to be surprised by how things ultimately turn out. In the writing of fiction, being predictable is one of the worst sins a writer can commit. Author and editor Russ Hills used this diagram to show what he meant by the inevitability retrospect, and he defined it by saying, When you begin a story, and while you're reading it, alternatives to the character's fate and to the plot's action seem open, possible, available. But when you finish the story and look back, the action should seem inevitable. 
When it comes to real life, though, most of us feel exactly the opposite about knowing how things will turn out in the future. We crave predictability. Not only do we want to know where we're headed, but we really want to know when and how we'll get there. In my experience, most of the stress of my life related to my career had to do with facing the unknown, my own undiscovered country. One of the stressors related to graduating from college is the looming unknown. College life has plenty of uncertainties, but one thing is always certain. Next semester, you'll have a schedule of classes and a routine that'll be familiar with you. When you're through with college, that scheduled certainty evaporates and you're dumped from a cozy river into the ocean of life with a distant and seemingly endless horizon. Facing that transition from a stable student life to the broad vicissitudes of adult life can be terrifying. So, how can you navigate or prepare to navigate this ocean of life, this undiscovered country you'll enter when you leave BYU? At our stage of life, Elizabeth and I can take a retrospective look at our careers and see the inevitable steps that led us to where we now live. We took those steps with faith, like Nephi, not knowing beforehand the things which we should do. We learned that our Heavenly Father loves us and that He has a plan for us, and that if we take the time to ponder and pray, we can learn His will for us. We learned that such pondering and praying isn't easy, and it isn't always fun, but it has always blessed us, especially when life smacked us with hard, sometimes heartbreaking experiences. We learned the paths of life are filled with wonderful, loving people who are willing to help us along the way. We learned to follow Nephi's advice. Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope. And we learned that more often than we'd like, we have to be patient and long-suffering. As Alter Holland said, some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. Most of all, though, we learned that when we've centered our lives on Jesus Christ and tried to live by His teachings, we've always been able to find our way, the right way, to the next steps in our lives. Life has taught Elizabeth and me that Heavenly Father has a plan for us, and I know that He also has a plan for each of you. I know that if you'll ponder, pray, and listen, He will lead you to where He wants you to be. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was A Light in the Darkness. Chris Crow gave his devotional entitled The Undiscovered Country, Navigating Toward the Future. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU Radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.